Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Gavin McClurg was in his mid-20s, thinking he should start figuring out a career path that he could stomach, when his father had an idea. My father was in his kind of 60s when he decided he wanted to sail out and live out his days like Robinson Crusoe, sail out in the South Pacific and just disappear, which was a really terrifically bad idea because he's he's 100% Irishman and he, he liked hanging out in bars and talking to everybody. I don't think he understood what sailing was all about, but that was the idea he got. Gavin didn't know much about sailing either, but he loved an adventure. So for two years, they looked at boats, took some lessons. Gavin picked it up pretty well. His dad, not as much. He always had to be reminded to duck when they turned so he didn't get pummeled by the sail. But the seas called, and his dad bought a boat, and the two decided to sail from Vancouver down to Santa Barbara. We took off in October, which is a is really late. That's quite late in the season to be heading down the west coast of the US because the, the storms start rolling across from Japan. You know, so all the people that we were talking to in the marinas, they all said the same thing. Listen, if you're gonna go that late down the coast, you really need to pick your weather windows and then just go in through the bars. Basically, poke your way down the coast. Don't go too far offshore. Make quick little trips when the weather's good. And then have the Coast Guard guide you through the sandbars back to shore. Good advice, especially since they'd never sailed offshore. But there was one guy that had done all these sail repairs for us, and he had done some sailing offshore, and he sailed to Hawaii and stuff, and he was like, no, 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 that's not how you do it. You don't do it over the bars. Just go offshore a couple hundred miles and deal with whatever comes. That's how you learn how to sail. And uh, I was like, oh, man, that, that sounds a lot more exciting. Let's do it that way. This is The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. Amy and I have been asking for your leap stories, and since this is the last episode of the season, we're hearing them. Turns out, people are leaping like crazy. Some of these we plan to turn into later episodes. Three of them will tell now. Back to Gavin, who, of course, decided to take that guy's advice and head straight out to sea even if it sent his father's peaceful retirement dreams twisting in the wind. But since his dad didn't have the hang of sailing, Gavin was the captain, and out they set. Gavin, his friend Chris, who had never sailed before, and his dad. The weather looked pretty good, but uh, the Coast Guard was warning about this big northerly that was coming. And pretty soon, it was clear that this boat repair guy, author of the Just Sail Out Into the Middle of the Ocean advice, might not have much credibility because he was the guy who had fixed up the boat for them. And the boat was kind of falling apart in all sorts of ways. For one, the autopilot was broken. And so Gavin stuffed himself into a hole about the size he is to fix it. And I spent almost 16 hours back in this little tiny hold. I'm basically sitting on the bottom of the boat that's that's right next to the ocean. And so it was really cold. And I, I come out of this little hole and I haven't slept in hours and hours. I'm 
totally exhausted, and uh, this storm, this northerly, starts picking up. At first, it was beautiful, these big breaking waves. The skies were still blue, but it was really windy. At that point, it was now blowing 50, 60 knots, so it's getting pretty close to hurricane-force winds. And uh, we're, we're being pushed, basically, down these massive waves. They took two-hour shifts, hand-steering the boat through the waves. And during his dad's shift, Gavin and Chris went below the deck where there was a little kitchen and living room called the salon on a boat and a room with bunk beds and went to sleep. I got woken up by flying out of the bed up against the wall and just slamming into the wall and then flying back into the bed. And at the same time, my buddy who was in the main salon just went, holy shit, all hands on deck. He's just screaming. And I jump up back out of bed and now I'm wide awake. And I open the door and there's two feet of ocean water in the bottom of the boat. The laptop's flying around on the cable. There's pots and pans and books and broken glass everywhere. My buddy's just kind of frozen. His eyes are huge. I run up the the steps into into the cockpit. My father's just sitting there. You know, his hands aren't on the wheel. He's completely in shock. The boat had been broadsided by a 35-foot wave. It tipped the boat way over. The mast went under the water. His father, up on deck, was attached to the boat by a cable hooked to his life jacket. He flew out of the boat when it tipped and was dunked into the water like a worm on a line. He got thrown overboard right into the ocean, and it went down and came back up pretty fast. And when the boat righted back up, it threw him back into the cockpit. Uh, You know, he was in quite a bit of pain. He can't speak. In fact, he wouldn't speak for nine hours after that. Gavin half-carried his father down into the boat and put him in bed. He came back up and looked around. The structure that protects the cockpit area was lost to the sea. Damage throughout the boat was catastrophic. It was just like, oh my God, we're, we're really in trouble. And so the first thing I did was, okay, Chris, we've we got to get the sail down. Because they were going way too fast, hurtled downwind by these hurricane force gales. It was unsafe. They could capsize. Meanwhile, the waves were huge, 35 feet, and that's measured from the middle of the wave. So when they were down in the trough of it, the wave was almost as tall as their 80-foot mast. So I I sit down there with Chris, and I've got him at the helm, and we rehearsed this whole thing. Because getting that sail down required a complicated maneuver to time right. Chris would need to wait for a big break in the waves, then gun the engine and turn into the wind, while Gavin would race to the sail and clip himself in. So if he got thrown overboard like his dad did, he wouldn't get carried off to sea. Then Chris, from the cockpit, would release the sail so that Gavin could pull it down. So we rehearse it and we get it down and we practice, you know, here's your, you're going to turn the engine on and you're going to go full speed and you're going to turn it up into the wind and I'm going to clip in and wait for me to clip in. Like, wait for me to clip in. That's really important. Okay, okay, we rehearse it. We got it all ready to go. <laughs> and, and he turns the engine on and he blasts it full speed and waits. It's perfect. He times it perfectly and he swings it up into the wind and I run forward and I'm just about ready to clip in, but I haven't quite clipped in and he blows the main. That means he released the sail before Gavin was clipped into the boat. 
So I panic because now the, the mainsail is completely loose. So I reach out to grab the mainsail and the boat, we're, it's, she's 52 feet long, she weighs 26 tons, and we launch off a wave like that famous picture of the Coast Guard cutter ship that just sails through the air. The entire boat is airborne. They're flying above these enormous waves. And when I grab onto the sail, instead of going down, because we've launched off this wave, the sail goes up the mast and I'm hanging onto it. Suddenly I'm just ripped off the deck of the boat and I go 20 feet high over the top of the deck. So I'm just holding onto like a wrinkle in the sail. We're pointed into the wind, so you can imagine all that wind in a sail that's just loose and it's going bang, 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 it's just slapping back and forth. And I was just hanging on like a little rag doll. I'm looking down at the trough of this ocean going, yeah, I'm done. There's no way I'm gonna make it. And the boat lands down on the ocean and I land and it's like landing like a kitten. It's, for some reason, it's really soft. I don't hurt anything. It's a total miracle. I pull in the rest of the sail, tie everything off. Now the wind just takes us, you know, it just steers us off downwind. And it takes us the next 16 hours of battling this thing. Finally, they limped near shore and the Coast Guard towed them in. The sad wreck of a boat, Gavin, his shell-shocked father, who had a cracked ankle from being thrown back into the boat, and had started speaking again after those nine mute hours. And Gavin's friend Chris. Chris hit the dock and we never saw him again to this day. <laughs> I've never seen him again. So he was done uh, with sailing. Gavin got a hotel and basically slept for three days. They got the boat patched up, and hugging the coast, he and his father finally made their way to Santa Barbara, a beautiful trip that was as peaceful as the first journey was harrowing. There were probably 1,500 or more spinner dolphins just all around the boat going crazy. Spinner dolphins are the ones that come up out of the air and do all the flips and turns and just magnificent. And yet, that did nothing to convince his dad sailing was for him. My dad immediately, I mean within 48 hours, put the boat up for sale. <laughs> he was totally done. He had no desire anymore to live out his days like Robinson Crusoe in the South Pacific. He was like, yep, screw it. I'm, that's it for me. I'm done with this. His dad ran as far as he could from sailing. Gavin ran straight toward it. I got a job immediately bartending right there at the little kind of restaurant bar at the Santa Barbara Marina and uh, saved up every penny I had for about the next year and a half. And I ended up buying the boat from dad on what he called the easy squeegee payment plan and spent the next 15 years sailing around the world a couple times. This death-skirting journey that made the others flee made Gavin realize he wanted this to be his life. So he started a business, taking people on sailing expeditions around the world and leading other adventures. He was National Geographic Explorer of the Year in 2015. Read up on Gavin and you'll find sentences like this. Gavin McClurg faces down grizzly bears, glacial rivers, and starvation in his effort to cross North America's most forbidding mountains. So he's braved a lot by now. But guess what? Something really scary is about to happen. I had a vasectomy four years ago, and it didn't work. So there you go. <laughs>
His girlfriend is pregnant with a baby girl. She's due in a couple of months. Our second story is about a woman, Amy Gottlieb, who, unlike Gavin, always knew she wanted to have kids. You know, it was always one of those things that I assumed was just going to happen. And I remember going to the gynecologist when I was like 38, and she's like, if you want to have kids, you have to think about it now. And sure, I should have listened to her, but I remember thinking that was really pushy and that kids will just happen magically as things should in life. And I didn't have to think about it. I think when I hit about 44 and I saw friends making pretty deliberate moves who wanted kids and hadn't done anything, I felt I better think about it as well. Amy lives in Oakland. I do too. And if you don't live in this area or another attractive, expensive, delayed maturity sort of metro area like it, this might seem strange, thinking a doctor's being pushy, talking about fertility at 38, waiting until 44 to think she should do something about it. But Amy has a lot of control over her life. She's got this awesome, socially responsible job that takes her all around the world. She throws concerts in her house, hangs out with lots of friends. She has designed her life the way she likes it. And it seems weird that some little aged egg might get in the way of all that. Plus, she always thought she'd be doing this with a partner. But I think that my vision at that moment is like, sometime in my life, I'm going to have my child in my arms, my partner by my side, and it doesn't matter how I got there. But I better start walking this path (laughs) somehow, even if it means the child first and the partner in the future. But doing it alone sounded scary. When I imagine how am I going to date or have the energy to go to work, like how am I truly going to balance this out, I, I don't know the answer to that. And if I think about it, I know I won't do it. I have to really just believe that I'm going to figure it out. So she took the plunge. Even though she was single, living with four roommates, even though her life did not seem ready for it, she signed up with an agency that does open adoptions. Amy wrote a profile, 10 pages on who she is and the kind of life the baby will have. Amy says it's like online dating. And they warn you, you're going to get weird calls. You're going to get people who don't really want to go to the adoption agency first. That's intimidating. But if they see a profile that looks nice and nurturing, they might contact that person. And that would be their in into the process, especially when they just don't know what they want to do yet. And maybe because I'm a single woman or my smile looked really warm, I started getting a lot of dings of just women who were wondering what they wanted to do. They all tell me their very long story of where they are in their life from all over the country. It was super interesting and sad, and I felt like I did a lot of coaching. Which put her in an awkward spot. After all, she had her own ideas about what she wanted these women to do. It's a recipe for heartbreak. For all of them, there's something in it that feels like this is the one. Like for one of them, a woman... um, was blown away that my name was Amy Beth because that was her sister who passed away's name, Amy Beth, and she's never met another Amy Beth, and for that reason, this is meant to be. She ended up keeping the baby. Another woman thought it was meant to be because she loved nature and I love nature and she had reddish hair and I had reddish hair and it's totally meant to be, and then 
She didn't even keep the baby. Nobody kept that baby. <laughs> Finally, one day last summer, when Amy was just back from Sri Lanka, she was squeezing in as many pre-baby trips as she could, she got a call from the agency. And they said, call us right away, call us right away. And I knew what it was going to be about, and I called them, and they said, a woman just decided she wants to adopt out. She's adopted out with us before, so we know it's a sure thing. Um, she's homeless, so she can't keep the baby legally anyway. She's having a baby any minute. Could be like one week, two weeks, ten days. And she picked you. She really likes your profile. So does her birth dad. Can you meet them right away? And I'm like, okay, this is it. So they met. That's coming up next after a quick break. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. So Amy had just gotten the call she'd been waiting for. A woman about to give birth was considering Amy as an adoptive mother. Right away, Amy went to meet her. She was a lovely young lady, just had had, you know, rough times. And I ended up meeting with her again and met other people in her family who I connected with right away. And were since this is open adoption, these people could be part of your life if it goes that way. So everything felt great. The baby was due any minute. There was so much to do. She set the birth mother and her boyfriend up in a hotel, arranged health care and meals for them, arranged a houseboat for them to live on for a month after the birth to recover. Amy is a director at work. She was wrapping up everything as quickly as she could, and the house wasn't ready for a baby. It was such a unbelievable thing to see my friends and family pop into action. Like, within 48 hours, my room next to my room turned into a full nursery. I don't even know where they got the stuff. Like, from this friend, this circuit, this line, this community board, there was a crib, there was a dressing table, there was full drawers of little boy clothes everywhere, and a rocking chair, and bottles, and yeah, it was so emotional to see, you know, what happened there when I needed it. And then... 
labor. Amy rushed to the hospital with her mother, fretted in the waiting room, and about a half an hour after birth, she got to go in. And just was amazed. He was just so cute and so healthy. I felt like we are going to get along great. <laughs> You're perfect. Oh, held him right away. Cried. My mom came in, held him and cried. And then I spent time with him while my mom was kind of bonding with the birth mother. They really got along great. Went home, got some rest, did the whole, I can't believe this is happening. I was so happy. Like, it was just in a way that I wasn't, had never experienced before. That was miraculous to just feel like I had my little family. <laughs> and then, like, there was moments where just everyone in my family was at my house. My stepfather, my mom, my dad. My stepmom, all my siblings, all my step-siblings, all my friends, random roommates. The house is full. Like, even if everybody wasn't the baby, somebody else is folding clothes and somebody else is doing this. And it felt like he had brought together all these aspects of my life in such a loving, powerful way. By the end of two weeks, I had my gig down and it was wonderful. And then things changed. And the thing they tell you barely ever happens, happens. The agency let me know that they were having a hard time reaching the birth mother and getting her to sign the final papers, which they assured me happens. And that particularly this mom, um, you know, hadn't been doing that well and probably just was really tired or took off and didn't let them know, but... She finally let them know she wasn't sure what she wanted to do. And I think they called me one day to tell me she wasn't sure what she wanted to do. And I remember sitting on the steps, and I was sitting with my cat. And he was asleep in his room, and I remember being really glad I was sitting because I almost felt like I was going to pass out. (laughs) And then she told me that she will go find her on her boat and find out what the deal is like the next day this part's even more blurry than the other parts and I remember letting my parents know this was happening not wanting to tell too many other people besides my siblings and my parents and a bunch of them just came over and I was just trying to keep it together like thinking that there's just no way this is going to happen I mean he's been my child for two weeks he had a name (laughs) His name was Leo River. And I remember getting a phone call. I could see it was from the agency, not feeling like I could pick it up. This is like, I think it was like a Friday morning. Let it go to the answering machine, the recording. Making myself listen, and it just said, call us right away. And so I knew. She said the birth mother wants to reverse the adoption. And it was just said pretty calmly. And I remember just thinking, I have to call you back. And I remember I hung up and then I, uh, nobody was home with me at the time. And then my dad came back up from Santa Cruz. My mom came over again so I could make that phone call with them. <laughs> 
And then what she told me is, someone's coming to pick him up the next day. So it was just, it just felt like I was having a terrible dream. Like my whole body, how it was affected physically and how I was thinking. And you kind of go in a bit of survival mode. Like I remember thinking, he's got to eat now. (laughs) He's got to eat. He's got to be changed. I need breakfast. Let's do these things. And then once my family was all over, we called them again to get the details. And we knew she couldn't keep the baby, so we actually had no idea what they meant by she changed her mind. And it turned out the birth dad finally told his family, which he hadn't done before, since the birth mother changed her mind. She decided she wanted to keep the baby in the family The birth dad's family from Wyoming was willing to take him. So they were driving up from Wyoming the next day. And they they just found out. (laughs) What I knew about them is they were a couple, a young couple. They actually had a six-month-old son. And they were nice. And it was terrifying because now I'm in the position of handing this baby who I feel is my baby over to strangers. I remember feeling like I'm a true mother because I wanted to do what was best for him. There's no getting out of it, he's going. So I remember with a friend of mine started packing all his favorite things. You know, anything that How would I know they're his favorite things? I just guessed. But any stuffed animals that were bought for him, any clothing that was bought especially for him. The next day, Amy's whole family came over, and they had a ceremony for him. They all sent him wishes, things that they want him to have in his life, like summer camp, a dog, big stuff and little stuff. A love for playing go fish or whatever the case may be, like really thinking of the things we would have done with him and put all those together. Um, Lots of kisses. And then I remember the agency asked if we wanted to just drop the baby at one of their offices and never meet the family. And I thought that was absurd. (laughs) And I understand why they'd ask. They wanted to be as painless as possible. But there was no way. We wanted to meet these people. And up they pull up. (laughs) They walk in, and I was terrified. And... Me and this woman look at each other. We both just hug. (laughs) She was actually great. And they had an adorable little boy. And my family just sort of pounced on them with hugs and presents. And, you know, we just embraced them. And then they took everything. And How long did they stay? They stayed maybe for the goodbye, maybe an hour. But in that hour, I really just felt like they would... They were good people, and he was in good hands. So to get that comfort was really wonderful. And then off he went to go live a life in the country in Wyoming. I mean, the whole thing from getting that phone call to saying goodbye was exactly one month. (laughs) So it was one huge, crazy, powerful, beautiful, hard, wild month. And I wouldn't trade it. (laughs) Wouldn't trade it. 
And once I caught my breath, got some sleep, I felt like he was just a gift. You know, it was not a 40-year gift, but it was a two-week gift. And it was a gift that showed me what I have, showed me what I could do, showed me that this is possible, made everyone in my life a complete hero in my eyes. So many people ask the question, will you ever do it again? And I guess anybody who was there with me at that ceremony would know that of course I'd do it again. I guess the observation from the outside is that that must have been completely devastating. And the truth was, yeah, I'm crying talking about it, but mostly because it was so beautiful. Amy's profile is back on the adoption site. And she's been talking to several mothers. But this time, she's telling them her story so they know she's wary of uncertainty. She's hoping for a chance with another baby soon. Dear Judy and Amy, I ran away to a place that I'd never been to work at a job that I had no experience and live in an unfamiliar living situation. And I have been married for 26 years and am the primary caregiver for my 89-year-old father. But I am in the second half of my life. Would I ever have this chance again? Some people thought that I was incredibly selfish. Some thought that I was incredibly brave. And many thought, is she ever coming back? As I walked to the airport's departure gate and turned around to see my husband sobbing, I also thought, will I ever come back? Kind regards, Betty Giordano, Ashford, Connecticut. Betty, what happened? We needed to know, so we called her. Hello, this is Betty. Oh, hi, Betty. It's Judy from uh, KQED. Oh, hi, Judy. How are you? In talking to Betty about it all, it sounds like when she got on that plane, she'd been tamping down what she calls her free spirit for more than 30 years. I majored in accounting, which really went against everything of who I was. I'm very outgoing. But I felt that when I got out of school, I should be able to graduate with a degree that I could get a job. And I did that. And then once I started working in the corporate world, it was so regulated, um, the protocol, how you act, and even accounting, it's very rigid. So that's when I started losing my voice. That corporate job, it's also where she met her husband. He was an accountant, too. About a year after they met, he proposed at dinner on Valentine's Day. And I was so excited, and I called my parents. I said, Mom, we're coming over. I have something to tell you. And she said, Betty, are you drunk? I was just so happy. I wasn't drunk. I was just so happy that um, he proposed to me, and we were going to spend our life together. But as the years went on, that excitement had faded, not just in her marriage, but everything in her life seemed dulled. Somewhere along the line, she had lost herself. And here I was. I had fewer years ahead of me than I had behind me. I didn't feel like myself. I know how I felt when I felt good, but I hadn't felt that in so long. And I was just going in this 
downward spiral. She got laid off from her job. And then um, my husband retired, and I just was not in a good place. And having him around a lot and I was around a lot was very stressful on our marriage. So she spent more time avoiding her husband, shutting herself into a room. She had a really tough couple of years. Her mother died. She was taking care of her aging father. And um, I had been a caregiver for many, many years. And I think I had really lost the essence of who I really was. I sort of just went along with the flow and tried to be accommodating to everyone, to people at work, in my marriage, the family. And so it just went on and, and ended in this crescendo of ending up in marriage counseling and feeling the need to just escape. I really felt I was going to die living an unfulfilled life. She needed to do something else, anything else. So I remember years ago, I, I learned about seasonal jobs. I said to my husband, I'm going to go out west. I'd never been out west before and work in a seasonal job. He was really unhappy with that, but our marriage counselor thought it would be a good idea. So I applied for maybe 20 or 30 jobs. It was not so much the reason in my mind, but a feeling in my gut that I had to move forward with this in order to live a happier life for me and my husband and my family. So she took one of the jobs she was offered at a lodge in Montana. My husband brought me to the airport and we said goodbye. I was cranky. I was so full of rage. I just said goodbye, you know, but he was really upset. But Betty, alongside the crankiness, was starting to feel the wonder of the unknown. And it felt right from the moment she landed. I've never been out west before. So just driving from the airport to the lodge and seeing the Rocky Mountains and the river, it was spectacular. I was just... Speechless, it was, felt so good. She was housed in a dorm in a 1920s building that had been used to house railroad workers. So I saw my room and it was sort of bare bones, but that was fine. For the first time in many, many years, I would be responsible for only myself. It was great for me living in a dorm with, um, People of all ages, there were people my age, but then there was the younger crew. So I felt liberated. I felt a sense of independence that I hadn't felt in 30 years. I worked in a sort of convenience store in the lobby of the lodge right across from the front desk. So I love watching people. I love talking to people. So it was great. I could see people come and go. She spent a lot of time in nature and eventually talking to her husband. When I arrived in Montana, I think I called him once uh, pretty soon after my arrival to let him know that I had arrived safely. And then I didn't call for a while. But as the summer progressed, I called more and more often and I would 
send home packages of souvenirs, and he would send me packages of things that I needed because I was in a rural part of Montana. There weren't a lot of stores around. Very domestic little packages. Um, I'm a vegetarian, so I needed some peanut butter. They had peanut butter there, but only in those small containers, and I used a lot of peanut butter um, on my sandwiches. And let me see, sent me toothpaste. He sent me liners for the draws, so I could line the draws with this plastic stuff. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. There's such a difference between communicating in person and on the telephone. And I have to say that when we spoke on the phone, it was like the old days, you know, when we were dating and we were both so interested in what each other had to say. He likes trains, so sometimes I would walk over to the train station so he could hear the trains go by, the long freight trains. I think it was really difficult for my husband to uh, see me go to Montana. But what a gift for me that was. He really cares so much, and he knew it was so important to me that he let me go. And I don't want to say if he said I couldn't go, I wouldn't. But it was a deep understanding of me that he had that I think I never acknowledged before. And her whole idea of why she was there changed. I thought that was a definite possibility that my marriage would end because I was on a journey, I guess, of self-discovery to learn who I really was. And I guess I thought of myself as a very strong, independent woman, which I am, but that doesn't mean necessarily mean going it alone. It means also being strong and independent in a loving, caring relationship. Betty had always wanted to see Wyoming, too. So when her stay was over, her husband arranged a trip for her there, alone, before she came back to meet him and their dog at the airport. And it was a certain sense of relaxation to my husband again and be with him because he really knows who I am and a certain sense of familiarity that I hadn't experienced while being in Montana. All of her old life stuff was right there. Her father had a scare and had to be taken to the hospital the very night she flew in. She took him, but it didn't feel like the burden it had before. Nothing did. She had more control. She could say no when she needed to. I think that I always felt that by speaking up, that would be hurtful to others. But that's not the case. You can speak up and use your voice and just express concern or even frustration without the rage that I used to have. Being home felt great. I had a great community in Montana. They were all wonderful. They really didn't know me. Coming home, everyone knows me. We share our joys and our sorrows. And that sense of community has really permeated the way that I live and the way that I move through the world now. And my relationship with my husband has changed so much, too. I really appreciate the way he cares for me 
And now I'm sort of amused with some of the idiosyncrasies that he has and how that works in our marriage. Well, I think sometimes you kind of have to step out of your comfort zone because that's what I did. 58 years old and off I go and some people said I was crazy, but sometimes that takes you full circle back to some place where you really didn't realize what was there. That's The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. And I'm Amy Standen, and this was our final episode in Season 2. You can find all of our episodes, including Season 1, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The music in this episode is by Seth Samuel. Nathan Campbell wrote and performed our theme song. Casey Minor edited this story. Danny Bringer, Rob Spate, and Katie McMurrin engineered it. Our executive producer is Joanne Wallace. Special thanks to our associate producer, Kendra Klang. And to Gavin McClurg, Amy Gottliff, and Betty Giordano for telling us their stories. We love hearing from listeners. Write us at theleap at kqed.org. With any luck, we'll be back with another season of The Leap. Thanks so much for listening. That's The Leap from KQED. Leaping lizards, is that really me? I wasn't born to fly, Lord, Lord, I was born to creep. So circle your buzzers over the yawning deep. I bet all I got against your life that I'm gonna make the leap, 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 leap. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.